0: Amen. Thank you, Kyle. You may be seated. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Chronicles, chapter 14. 2 Chronicles, chapter 14. Uh, Many of you know the name Eric Little. He's also known as the Flying Scotsman. He was an Olympic athlete in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. Very fast runner. You might have Uh, Heard his name or known him from the the movie Chariots of Fire. His life is an amazing story. Not only is he a fast runner and just a great athlete, but he left all of that to become a missionary in China, to share the gospel and to proclaim Christ. In July of 1923, Eric Little ran a race that was uh, just a little over a quarter of a mile long. And it was a race that would never be forgotten. It's actually in the movie, Uh, chariots of fire. At the sound of the gun, Eric Little bolts out of the starting blocks, but as he's running, he tripped into another runner and he fell off of the track into the middle of the field. The English runner who was favored in this race, J.J. Gillies, ran ahead of him and was in first place by a long shot. By the time that Eric Little was back on his feet, He was in the back of the pack, and the last of the other runners was 30 yards away from him. But Eric Little didn't quit. He attacked them with such a pace that he finally overtook all of them, including the front runner, J.J. Gillies, three yards from the line to win before collapsing completely spent on the ground. A newspaper reporter said it this way, the circumstances in which Little won the event made it a performance bordering on the miraculous. Veterans whose memories take them back 35 years, and in some cases even longer in the history of athletics, were unanimous in the opinion that Little's win in the quarter mile was the greatest ever track performance that they had ever seen. Eric Little had a terrible start in the race, but he ends in first place. And the opposite is true for J.J. Gilley. He began the race in first place, but he ends up losing the race. Numerous times, the apostle Paul in the New Testament depicts the Christian life that we live as a race. We are runners in a race. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul describes his own life as a race that has been run finally to completion, where he breaks the finish line, breaks that tape as he crosses the finish line. In a race, it is very important how you begin, but that's not the most important thing. In a race, the most important thing is how you end. Where you end that race is the most important part of the entirety of the race, because if you end in last place, it doesn't matter if you began in first and you ran the entirety of the race in first. If you end in last place, you end in last place. It's not about how we start. It's about how we finish, Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, how are you running your race? Where would you say you began your race? Was it a good start to the beginning of your race? Was it a rocky start? Do you see the finish line? We, we've talked about this in Family Bible Hour this morning. With an eternal perspective, we know there's a day coming where we're going to break that tape, we're going to see our Savior face to face. Are you running the race to win? the reality for both physical races and spiritual races before the Lord is that a good start does not equal a good finish. A good start does not equal a good finish. How many times have we heard of a pastor who has made a shipwreck of their faith, whether it's in immorality, whether it's in greed, whether it's in some form of licentiousness, or the church member who though faithfully serving for decades as a deacon or an elder, just walks away from the faith entirely. We all have stories in our mind where we know godly men and women who have gone before us, and yet they do exactly what Paul says some of us do, which is make a shipwreck of our faith. We're moving along in our boat and we hit the rocks of apostasy. We shipwreck our faith. We walk away from the Lord. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to fall away. I don't want to make a shipwreck of my life. I want us all to make the finish line. I I wish that we could all collectively die together so that we could all hold our hands together and say, here we go, we're going to see Jesus, let's finish our race well. It's my job as a pastor to make sure that you keep running, so often we, we want to get people into the race, right? Evangelism, evangelism and outreach, start the race, start the race, get in the race, start the race. And that's good and we need people to get into the race, but we need people to end the race well. My job as a pastor, as a shepherd, is to make sure you're running well and you're running in a way that you will win and you will finish well. John Piper says it this way, until you believe that life is war, that the stakes are your own soul, you're probably just going to play at Christianity with no blood earnestness, no vigilance, no passion, no wartime mindset. If that's where you are this morning, your position is very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep or into a peacetime mentality as if nothing serious is at stake. And God in his mercy has you here this morning and had this sermon appointed to wake you up and to put you on a wartime footing. This morning we're going to look at the life of King Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 through 16. And he teaches us in this life that it's very possible to have a great start. An amazing life for the majority of your life, but to end terribly. And as we look at his life, I, I want to ask God to just hold a mirror up to our lives. We're all at different places in our race before the Lord. We're all at different places in our, in our running and our walking with Him. But my question is, are we going to end well? Are we going to finish well? And what is it going to take in order for us to do that? So let me pray and ask the Lord to wake us up as we dive into this text together and to encourage our hearts to end well. Father, we come before you and we ask you to do what is absolutely impossible for us to do on our own. That is to be convicted by your word, to see it clearly for what it is and what it is saying, and to not remain unaffected. God, I praise you for our church I praise you for the people that have started the race, that are running hard after you. But God, I pray that we would not just be excited about starting the race, that we would see there is a finish line and we need to run the race to win. And may King Asa's life, as we see it unfolded before us this morning, be a rebuke to our hearts, be a challenge to our hearts, be a warning to our hearts. And ultimately, may it be an encouragement to our hearts to follow Jesus because he is worth it. He's better by far than anything this world has to offer. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Help us to see, to savor Christ, and to see the finish line in view so that we would run the race to win. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. A little background for you. A thousand years before Jesus was born, King David was on the throne. So a thousand years before Jesus, we've got David. He's the ruler. We had Saul before him, then we had David. And then David has a son, Solomon. Solomon's going to reign, and Solomon's going to be the last king of the United Kingdom. Solomon's going to have a son. His name's Rehoboam. Rehoboam is going to reign in Judah, but he's going to split the kingdom. Uh, God split the kingdom after Solomon and gave Uh, Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. And Rehoboam reigns over the two tribes in the south, typically called Judah. After Rehoboam, his son Abijah ruled for only three years. And after Abijah, his son Asa became king in Judah. So we're not too far removed from David. That's where we find ourselves in 2 Chronicles chapter 14 with this man named Asa. Kings, uh, the book of Kings records... Os's reign in just 16 verses, in 1 Kings 15, 9 through 24, it's just 16 verses. The book of Chronicles takes 47 verses, it's chapter 14, verse 1 to chapter 16, verse 14, to recount the entirety of his life. While 16 verses are absolutely sufficient to evaluate his reign for the author of Kings, the chronicler's purpose is to illustrate the theological principle of what happens when you take your eyes off of God. What happens when you, as the king over Israel, decide to do things your way? That's going to require more detail, and that's why we have three chapters here in 2 Chronicles. Asa ruled for 41 years, and 35 years of that reign were solid years, amazing years. 35 of 41 were almost completely peaceful with Asa doing amazing things. God blessed him. God was with him. God protected him. God prospered him. But something's going to happen in his life that's going to change the course of the race, and he's going to end badly. But let's start with his amazing beginning, okay? Number one, Asa's great start. This is chapter 14 and chapter 15. King Asa's amazing start. Let's start in Second Chronicles 14, verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers, so he has passed away. They bury him in the city of David, and his son Asa becomes king in his place. And the land is undisturbed for ten years during his days. Asa does good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Listen to what he does. He removes the foreign altars and the high places. He tears down the sacred pillars. He cuts down the Asherim. He commands Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to observe the law and the commandments. He's doing what's right. He's tearing down idols. He's doing exactly what God had commanded him to do. He commands the whole nation to worship God, to observe his laws, Verse 5, he removes the high places, the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. The kingdom is undisturbed under him. He builds fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. He had said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has blessed us. He's given us rest on every side. And so they built and they prospered and he's prospered with an amazing army. Verse 8, he has an army of 300,000 men from Judah bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them are valiant warriors. How would you like to be in that army? Just a valiant warrior. 580,000 men. King Asa has an amazing start. He's commanding everyone with his kingship He commands everyone to worship God, to seek the Lord. He's a national leader in the faith, and God blesses him. Verse 9, we get to a little bit of a test. God's blessing him. Things are going well, very prosperous. Things are uh, just thriving under King Asa's leadership. So let's let's test that. Let's see what happens. What's going to happen when a trial comes? Verse 9, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. So a million men and 300 chariots against 580,000 men. And 300 chariots doesn't just count as a man. That's like 10 men per chariot. So we've got a lot of people against very few people. It's two against one, basically. What is King Asa going to do? Verse 10 Asa went out to meet him. They drop in battle formation. And verse 11, he calls to the Lord his God. And he says this Lord, There is no one besides you to help between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord, our God, because we trust in you. And in your name, we have come out against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Oh, we need to pray like this. God, we don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our wisdom. We don't trust in our resources. We trust in you. In your name, we do what we're doing. And so work for the glory and the renown of your name. Do whatever seems right to you. Help us. Be our help. We're not crying out to you, God, as those who have helped themselves, right? God helps those who help themselves. No. God helps those who say, I can't help myself. I have no bootstraps to pull myself up with. I can't help myself. God, you are my only help. You are my only hope. So he cries out, and what happens? Verse 12, the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Just just one verse to describe God did exactly what King Asa was praying for. Help us, God said, sure. I'd be more than happy to help you. Verse 13, Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar and so many Ethiopians fell that they couldn't even recover for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army and they carried away very much plunder. God's the one who won the day. Why? Because Asa cried out, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I don't rely on my army. We're two to one here. 580,000 people against a million men and 300 chariots. God, we need your help. And God helps. God wins the day. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this amazing victory, the Spirit of God comes upon a man named Azariah. He's the son of Oded. Azariah means the Lord gives help, and the Lord's going to give help through this man. He's a prophet of God with the Spirit of God upon him, and he speaks to King Asa. He goes out, verse 2, and he meets him, and he says to him, listen to me, King Asa. I've got a word from the Lord for you, and it comes right off the heels of your amazing victory. Don't trust yourself. Seek the Lord. Look at what God did. Here's the word that God gave to him. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah, and all Benjamin, The Lord is with you when you are with Him. And if you seek Him, He will let you find Him. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. But in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought Him and He let them find Him. In those times there was no peace to Him who went out or to Him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land Nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage, because there is reward for your work. Be strong. Don't lose courage. When the moment looks like there's nothing you can do uh, to keep on pressing forward, don't lose courage. Be strong. This is the beauty of Azariah in King Asa's life. We need to be Azariahs to each other. We need to go and speak to each other. We just talked about this in uh, Family Bible Hour where we need accountability and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We need to be in each other's lives to give each other encouragement. John Piper says it this way, what is the main thing that the church does for each other? We speak to each other in ways that help us not to be deceived by the allurements of sin. Or to put it positively, we speak to each other in ways that cause us to have hearts of faith in the superior value of Jesus Christ over all things. We fight to maintain each other's faith by speaking words that point people to the truth and value of Jesus. That's how you guard against an evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief means failing to rest in Jesus as your greatest treasure. So helping each other believe means showing people reasons why Jesus is more to be desired and trusted and loved than anything else. We need to be Azariah's to each other, saying, keep trusting in God. Don't forsake him. Don't run away from him. Run to him, and you will find him. Asa trusts in the Lord. He continues to do good. He hears exactly what Azariah said. He processes it, and all the rest of chapter 15 is King Asa just living out Amazing reforms in the nation. Just a couple for you to look at. Verse 8, he's going to remove all of the idols in the land. And he's going to go and repair the altar of the Lord. Verse 9, his revival is so effective that people move from the north, from Israel, the kingdom in the north, down to the south in Judah because his country is just blowing up. This country is doing amazing things for God because God's blessing him. And so people in the north hear that, and they say, we want to do that. We're going to forsake idol worship. We're going to forsake our idolatry, and we're going to go worship Yahweh, the one true God. Verse 12, they enter into a covenant with God as a nation. They just, as one nation, enter into a covenant with God. You don't really see this often in the Old Testament at all. Verse 13, King Asa does something that had been commanded that no king had done up until this point, which is those who do not seek the Lord are to be put to death. If you want to pursue idolatry, you are going to be put to death. And King Asa says, I will do that as king. Kings weren't doing this. And he says, I will obey the Lord. All of Judah, verse 15, rejoices because of their oath. And verse 16, he gets so enraptured by reforming the land and doing exactly what God has said, that he deposes his mother because she was setting up idol worship. Even his mom isn't safe if she's an idol worshiper. I obey God. I don't obey family, I obey God. Complete, single-hearted devotion to the Lord. We look at this man and we think, this is the guy that every dad wants their daughter to marry, right? Look at the reforms, look at his heart, devotion to the Lord. Look, it's not just words, it's actions. This man is a solid believer who loves God, who obeys God. But Asa's super start is not enough to keep him from an awful finish. And that's point number two. We see Asa's amazing start, but point number two, we see Asa's terrible finish. This is in chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Asa's terrible finish begins in the 36th year of Asa's reign. He's been reigning for 36 years, 36 years of peace and prosperity, of God, blessing. But in the 36th year, the king of Israel in the north, his name is Basha, he comes up against Judah and he fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. So Asa's reforms had been well known and heard in the northern kingdom. And so people were starting to leave the northern kingdom and going down to live in the southern kingdom. And Basha says, I don't want to lose any more people. So he sets up a blockade, as it were. He puts a blockade in Ramah, and he says, you can't pass through. Nobody's getting in or out. I'm just setting up a wall here, a border wall that nobody can get through. This is where I'm leaving this so that uh, just kind of as a bully, I don't want Asa to get any more people. That's all this is. No war, no death, no threat of war. Just, I don't want people going through Rama to get down to your country anymore, to get down to your nation. I don't want that anymore. What's Asa going to do? You remember what he did with the Ethiopians. He said, you know what? We can't help ourselves here. We don't have the power. We don't have the resources. We're going to rely on God. We're going to trust in God. So in a blockade where they're starting to lose food, they're starting to lose uh, water, they're starting to lose things that they need, and they're losing some people as well, what are they going to do? What's he going to do as king over this country? Verse 2. He brings out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. The king's house as well, and he sent them to Ben Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I've sent you silver and gold. Break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. What did he do when he was outnumbered two to one with the Ethiopians? He said, God, we need your help. You are our only hope. And when Basha becomes a bully and sets up a blockade in Ramah, he says, you know what, I can handle this one on my own. Number one, he goes and he steals from the temple treasury. It's never a good idea to steal from God. And he says, I've got this one, I'm going to steal money from God. Number two, he steals money from God in order to pay a pagan king, this Ben-Hadad from the king of Aaron from Damascus. He goes and he pays off a pagan idol worshiper with God's own money to say, hey, can you help me? I, I just need your help. Can you please just break your treaty with, uh, with Basha? Break your treaty and, and I'll be okay. Now, please take note of verse 4. Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa sent the commanders of his armies against the city of Israel and they conquered Aijan, Dan, Abelmaim and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. So Asa's trusting in himself, stealing from God and paying a pagan idol worshiper to do the work for him, worked. This is really insightful for us because sometimes in our pragmatic mentality, we think, well, whatever works is going to be good, right? If God's going to open the door and this is working, then it must be of God. You can look at Os's life and you can say, well, see, it worked out. His actions ended up working for the good of the country, so it must have been a good thing. No, no, we, we can see clearly this is not a good thing to steal from God and to trust in pagan idol worshipers. But what a great lesson. Sometimes when we rely on ourselves and on our own resources, things seem to go well for a season. But things are never well when we have stopped hoping in God and started hoping in what we can do on our own. We miss tremendous blessings. We bring unnecessary hardship on ourselves, and that's exactly what happens to King Asa. Verse 7, at that time... Another prophet comes out, this guy's name is Hanani, he's a seer, and he comes to King Asa, and he says to him, because you have relied on the king of Aram, and did not rely on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. You trusted yourself, and because you trusted yourself, yes, you got rid of Basha, Yes, the blockade is gone, but you didn't get rid of the king of Aram, and he's going to come back, and he's going to destroy you. If you had trusted in God, the king of Aram would also have fled, along with the blockade from Basha in the north. You would have been freed of everyone. But as it is, you lost the blessing, because you disobeyed the Lord and trusted in yourself. Asa threw away that blessing by trusting in money, by trusting in a pagan idol worshiper, ultimately just by trusting himself. And Hanani says exactly what you and I are thinking. I just, I love when, when we're reading and we're thinking, wait a second, you, King Asa, you trusted God when there were two to one, a million and 300 chariots and 580,000 men, but then you couldn't trust when there was just a blockade, you didn't trust the Lord. What's, what's the deal with that? King Asa, why did you do that? Hanani's thinking exactly what we're thinking. We're not, verse 8, the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen yet because you relied on the Lord he delivered them into your hand because the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his also you have acted foolishly in this indeed from now on you will surely have wars All the peace that you had for so many decades is gone in an instant because of your disobedience. Now, we know from Scripture, other Scripture, Romans 8, 28, for example, that if we repent after unbelief, God's going to take those chastisements of hardship, the discipline, and He's going to turn them for our good. And they will be fatherly discipline and not judicial condemnation. But it seems that Asa doesn't respond to the condemnation here of you shouldn't have done that. You disobeyed. And this isn't going to be fatherly discipline. This is going to be punishment. What would you do if you had been awesome? And a man of God comes to you and a man of God says to you, look, you trusted in God when you faced the Ethiopians and look at at what God did. And here you didn't trust in him. Let's just admit you blew it. You sinned. You disobeyed God. You trusted in yourself. You stole from God. You paid off a pagan idol worshiper. What would you have done if you had been confronted with that sin? What should King Asa have done? He should have said, yes, you're right, Hanani. First of all, thank you, God, for speaking through Hanani, just like he spoke through Azariah. Thank you, God, for showing me my sin. Help me to repent. Help me to obey. Help me to trust in you. and Go before the nation and say, look at what I've done. Father, please be gracious and gentle with us as we turn in repentance and ask for forgiveness. That's what he should have done, but verse ten tells us what he actually did. What is his response? He's angry with the seer. He's angry with the prophet of God, and he puts him in prison because he's so enraged at him for this. And he oppresses some of the people at the same time. Who are these? Some of the people. They're people who were saying exactly what Hanani was saying. Um, King Asa, God spoke through this man. You should have listened to him. Don't throw him in prison. This guy is a guy from the Lord. When you throw people that are God's men in prison, that means we've got bad news coming for our country. Don't do that. Please don't do that. He throws those people in prison as well. He brutally oppresses the people. We're not at the end of his life yet. He has time to repent. How will it end? Verse 11, Now the acts of King Asa from first to last, behold, they're written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, but even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but instead physicians. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. Three years before King Asa dies, he's given one last test. We've, kind of, we've seen three tests. Zara, the Ethiopian passes with flying colors, trusts in God. Basha and the blockade, mm, I can do this myself, doesn't trust in God. And then we have one last test, a disease in his feet. That is severe. Let's, let's honestly assess this as a very severe disease, but let's also just note, this is with Asa and his feet. If there's ever a time that you can say, okay, God, I just trust you. I trust you're doing something here. Please help me out. It's here. But instead, he trusts not only in the physicians, but yet again, quite literally, he trusts in himself because the name Asa means healer. God, I've got this one. I don't need your help. And as he trusts in himself, he dies after a foot disease, claims his life over the course of a three-year period. Asa's amazing start was not enough to keep him from shipwrecking at the very end. Amazing beginning. And he just slows down, crashes and burns at the end. How does he get this way? How does anyone get this way? How do the pastors that we hear get this way? How do you and I stop from going this direction? How did Asa get this way? I think two main things. Number one, Asa obviously disobeyed God's word. King Asa disobeyed God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, commanded that kings do three things. Write out a copy of the law every year, read it every day, and keep the law with them wherever they went. If Asa had done this, written out the law every single year, writing down the law, writing down the Torah, reading it every day, keeping it with him wherever he went, he would have remembered the trustworthiness of God. He would have seen it in front of him every single day and thought, you know what? I don't need to trust in myself. God is trustworthy. God's the one who delivered his people from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. God can do this. God can take care of a disease in my feet. He disobeyed God's word. Secondly, not only disobedience to God's word, and this is an aspect of disobedience, he had a prideful, arrogant heart. Of self reliance. King Asa had a prideful, arrogant heart of self reliance. How did he get here? How did he fizzle out at the end of his life? It's because he took his eyes off of God and he put them on himself, thinking and trusting in himself rather than in what God had commanded him to do. Jonathan Edwards says it this way Pride is the main handle by which Satan grabs hold of Christian persons and is the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder the work of God. Pride is the main handle that Satan grabs hold of in the life of Christian persons. And it's the main thing that he uses to clog and hinder the work of God. It absolutely clogged and hindered King Os's life. Thomas Watson says, the proud man is the mark which God shoots at. And he never misses his mark. If you raise yourself up, trust in yourself, think, I've got this, I don't need God's help. All God's going to do is give you the chance to try it. Try it out on your own. And as we try it on our own, I think we can all say, it never ends well. When we try things on our own, the end result is usually despair. Wayne Mack says this, it's a a lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful because if we're going to say, okay, I I don't want to be like King Asa, then I think we need to ask ourselves, our own heart, genuinely so, where does pride creep up? Not if I'm prideful, we're all prideful. But let's listen to Wayne Mack address our hearts, address pride in our hearts, and even in these moments, ask God to break us of our pride and give us the gift of repentance to walk in humility. He says this, In regard to a view of oneself, pride makes self the focus. Proud people think about their needs, their wants, and their reputations. They expect praise from others. They're blind to their own faults. They're easily offended. In regard to a view of other people, pride refuses to admit mistakes. It never asks to be forgiven. Proud people do not submit to authority. They're disrespectful, they're slanderous, they're rebellious. They blame others and they justify themselves. They reject correction or instruction. They don't listen well. They are self-serving. They expect to be served by others. Essentially, proud people have a distorted view of reality. They delude themselves into thinking that they are superior to other people and that they understand other people's thoughts and motives. They trivialize the bad things that they have done to others and exaggerate what others have done to them. One of the consequences of pride is an uncontrolled tongue that lashes out at others. Proud people hurt other people and are divisive, they alienate people and destroy relationships. Another consequence of pride is being unteachable. Proud people are stubborn and therefore they remain spiritually immature. Further, pride leads to dishonesty and inconsistency. Proud people can't be trusted because they do not value the commitments that they've made to others. Therefore, ultimately, pride robs people of joy, peace, and usefulness for Christ. I don't know about you, but when I read that list, I I say, I hate pride. And I see it far too often in my own heart. And I want to get rid of it. Because King Asa with a prideful heart, ends up saying, I don't really need God on this one. I can do this myself. He trusts in himself and ends very badly. And King Asa is not the only one. The Old Testament is replete with examples of people who trust in themselves over and over and over again. Saul, who trusts in himself to be able to offer a sacrifice when God said, that's not your job, that's Samuel's job, and he disobeys God. King David Doesn't go out to war with the other kings when it's supposed to be the time of going out to war. Stays home, fantasizes over a woman, commits adultery, commits murder. Solomon, adulterous heart. Jeroboam decides that he's going to do things better than God has done them and set up altars to worship false gods. Golden calf in the north and in the south. King Uzziah, Trusts in himself to offer incense in the temple when only the priests were allowed to do that and instantly is struck with leprosy. Us is not the only one. The Bible is filled with people who just make a shipwreck of their life. Where should we be careful? Well, we should be careful in areas of pride, areas of power, trusting in ourselves. We should be very careful in areas of prosperity, in areas of money, we should be very careful in those areas. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul says, people going after those things have pierced themselves with many pangs and make a shipwreck of their faith. Sexual immorality, obviously David uh, doesn't fight against that. And though God forgives him, his kingdom ends up uh, fizzling out as well. Just being complacent, thinking, you know what, I can coast. The Christian life is antithetical to coasting. So if you just are complacent and think, yeah, we're doing fine. I've got this all together. you'll, You'll end up one day looking back saying, I should never have taken it easy. I should never have taken it easy. We have to fight every single day. How do we fight? John Piper says, if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you want to enter into life? Do you want to live? Then fight, get violent, get a wartime mindset. Stop making peace with ears and eyes and tongues and hands and feet that betray you like Jesus and go over to the side of the enemy and become instruments of sin and make war on your soul. Put to death the deeds of your body. Now, at this point, many people might think, Well, yes, of course I don't want to make a shipwreck of my faith, but we just sang, He will hold me fast. When my faith fails, He'll hold me fast. I can't really make a shipwreck of my faith because, Patrick, don't you remember Philippians chapter 1? He who began that good work in you, He's going to be faithful to complete it. I'm good, right? Once saved, always saved. Yes, I believe that that's true. I believe it's biblical. I don't think once saved, always saved is the most helpful way to say that because I think we can tend to think, I made a decision to follow Jesus, and I can just sit back and enjoy life in my lazy boy, and I don't have to work. I don't have to fight, because once saved, always saved. No, I think the better way to say it, the more biblical way to say it, is once you're saved, you will stay saved. God has given us the disciplines of grace to keep us saved, one of which is being here with brothers and sisters. say it all the time, right? I go to church to stay saved. I go to church because it's a means of grace that God has given in my life to keep me in his hand and to keep me moving towards the finish line. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, yes, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But one chapter later, Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You need to work. God's working, but you need to work. And if you refuse to work, listen to Azariah's words. If you refuse to to fight to seek God, Azariah said, you're not going to find him. He's going to forsake you. He's going to let you go. Somehow, whether actively or passively, whether directly or indirectly, We have come to believe that the Bible's doctrine of eternal security, which is a biblical doctrine. We love this doctrine. It's all over the pages of Scripture. But somehow we've come to believe that the Bible's teaching of eternal security renders null and void the possibility of apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy is when a believer, quote-unquote, walks away from the faith because they were never really of the faith. We need to fight because God has given us the means of grace to fight until our dying day to hold on to Christ. And yes, our grip weakens, and yes, our grip slips. But if we just will say, you know what, God has saved me, I don't need to do any work. I think the Bible would say, you have to ask yourself if you're really even saved to begin with. Fight every day. Guard your heart every day. Watch for cracks in your armor every day. Watch for areas where your thinking has grown complacent, where you're thinking there might be something better than Jesus out there, and none of us would say that with our lips, so look at your life, because your life will tell you. Your life will betray what it is that you love the most, what it is that you trust in the most. One principle in the Bible that I think is just replete over and over again, don't ever let one bad decision become a second bad decision. Don't let one bad decision become two or three or four. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to say, I made a bad decision. Confess, forsake your sin, and you will find mercy. You'll find forgiveness. You'll find grace. Today is the day. Don't ever become good at making excuses for your sin. Call it what God calls it. Don't become good at making excuses for your sin. So you might say, okay, I... I want to follow Jesus. I've begun the race. I'm running as fast as I think I can. I don't want to make a shipwreck of my faith. What do I do now? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking back on the beginning of your life with Christ. And you're thinking, I didn't really even have a good start to begin with. Or maybe you're saying, I had a really good start, but I'm afraid I don't want to fizzle out. Because of the fact that it's not how you start, It's how you finish. We have really good news today. It's not where you start. It's where you finish. So if you are here today, and you have had the worst start in the world, or maybe you had an amazing start, but just recently over the last year, or the last couple months, or even the last week, or even just yesterday, you had a terrible moment. And you're thinking, what can I do now? Is there any hope for me? A good start doesn't equal a good finish, but you haven't finished yet. And there's grace for you to find at the foot of the cross if you'd run to Jesus, if you'd cry out to him. We all have terrible starts. Ultimately, theologically, all of our beginnings were death, dead in our trespasses and sins, and Jesus Christ made us alive together with him because it is his grace alone that works in us. to to regenerate our hearts, to bring us life. So fill your affections with Jesus, John Owen says. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ, that there may be no room for sin. Pursue devotion to Jesus and love him more than anything in this world so that the things of this world, namely sin, will grow strangely dim. Look to the people in the Bible who made it, who finished well, You have Paul, you have Peter, you have Enoch, you have Elijah, you have Elisha, you have Ezekiel, you have Daniel. You have so many people who finished well by the grace of God, as they trusted in him and not in themselves. But above all, brothers and sisters, look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's the one who ran his race to perfection, so that when you and I are failing in our race, we look to his perfection and we plead the blood of Christ and we say, Jesus, I need your perfect record, because my record is terrible. And as I stare at your perfection, I am motivated to live, not because I want to earn your favor, but because I already have your favor through Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. And that is why we come together this morning to celebrate communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, so that as we partake of these elements, they're not mystical. They're not magical. There's nothing uh, crazy about them. It's a symbol. It's a symbol to remind us of our dying Savior, of the one who in his perfection lived our perfect sinless life that we needed to live to get to God on our own, but we've all failed because we've all sinned. And he took our punishment on the cross. The Father treated Jesus as if Jesus had lived our sinful lives so that the Father could treat us as if we had lived Jesus's perfect life. So, we come to celebrate. We come to celebrate the one who start his race perfectly and ended his race perfectly. The one that we look to to help us in our race. The one that we cling to as we fall, as we fail, as we trip up. The one that we know will bring us safely home. Let's press into him together as we even partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. And as we do I just want to ask your heart, how are you going to finish? What trajectory are you on right now? Are you on a trajectory that's going to take you safely home? Or are you on a trajectory like Asa, where you're beginning to trust your own heart? You're letting one bad decision become a second or a third or a fourth. You're slow to ask forgiveness. You're slow to turn to Christ. You're slow to repent. How are you going to finish your race? I don't know about you, but I want to finish just like Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, who said, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. May that be said of each and every one of us as we cling to Christ. May we keep the faith as He keeps us in the beautiful disciplines that He's given to us to live out for His honor, for His glory, and for His name's sake. Father, we are... So grateful for Jesus, who is the one who lived a perfect record in our place, on our behalf, and we trust in his perfection to gain entrance into heaven. We can do nothing to earn your favor, to earn righteousness. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of your glory. And so we cling to Christ. We cling to him now, and as we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper together, we cling to Christ specifically as we stare at his body and his blood. Jesus, you are our firm foundation. Our own good works are sinking sand. But the cross is our rock, the resurrection is our life, and you are our Redeemer taking what was ruined and adopting us as sons and daughters. Father, prepare our hearts even now as we contemplate the cross that we may drink and eat in a worthy manner, pleading with you to keep us, to hold us, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called and not forsake you, the fountain of living water, May we drink deeply from you even this day.
1: In the name of Jesus,
0: our Savior, we pray. Amen.